Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of Middle Market Growth Magazine. I'm joined today by phone by Pauline Brown, who has built a career building and leading luxury brands. She's the former chairman of North America for luxury goods company LVMH, and she has also held roles at the Carlyle Group, Estee Lauder, and Bain. After leaving LVMH at the end of 2015, Pauline joined the faculty at Harvard Business School. Pauline, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So as I mentioned in my intro, prior to joining Harvard, you were chairman for North America for LVMH. Can you talk about your role there and the portfolio of brands that you oversaw? Sure. Well, first of all, um, important to point out that LVMH is a French company. And um, when the French use the term chairman, they use it a bit differently than we're accustomed here in the state. In this case, it was uh, an executive role. It was an operational role. Uh, but unlike many of my colleagues who were titled uh, as CEO, uh, they ran brands. Um, and LVMH is a portfolio of many brands, in fact, around 70. Uh, and that's in many industries. In fact, it's more than five different industries within luxury, within the luxury sector that, uh, that they define themselves. Um, and so the reason they made that distinction around chairman is I was one of the few people in the company who had regional responsibility. Uh, North America is the single largest region for LVMH. And, uh, historically, all of the heads of the different brands who might have had a position in North America running the North American market would report back into a European uh, global brand CEO. And what the company realized around the time that they hired me was that they were not making the necessary adjustments that the way an American shopper or luxury buyer responds to various marketing tactics or product introductions is quite different than the way uh, a similar socioeconomic customer would respond in Europe or in Asia or even in Latin America. So my job was in part to be a translator, to take the type of initiatives that were coming out of Europe and make sure they were appropriate for this market. My job was also to bring this group, this very vast and diversified group within the region together so that they could use their economies of scale as a as an advantage as, in, instead of as uh, as a sort of uh, disconnected uh, network of businesses. So, uh, so it was both inward-facing and outward-facing. Um, I'd say I'd add to that list of responsibilities that I also was an ambassador of sorts to the larger community, the business community, the American um, uh, population of luxury buyers or, or partners. And uh, so it was a full job with a lot of different uh, interests and constituents, but a very exciting one and a very exciting sector. Hmm. And the retail and consumer goods space has, you know, obviously changed dramatically over the last decade, even in the last several years. So I'm curious to hear your perspective about how luxury brands are faring in today's retail environment. Yeah. Well, historically, luxury brands have operated quite differently than more industrial uh, mass marketed brands. And by that, I mean, um, they most within the very large portfolio most of them are not high volume businesses. Uh, they make expensive products, but they're uh, 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 not nearly as, um, as as well automated as you would find in other consumer goods. And um, and and they're high touch businesses because when uh, a luxury consumer is going into a store, whether it's to buy, you know, it could be a ten thousand dollar watch, it could be a hundred thousand dollar necklace, necklace, it could be a one thousand dollar bag. But the real pleasure in that buying process is as much from 
the in-store experience, from the quality of the selling environment, from the look and the feel of the fabrication of the product, which doesn't always come across as well if you just, for example, see a picture online. So some of the dynamics that have dramatically shifted other industries or other sections within retail have not had that extreme effect on luxury. Luxury is, by and large, still happening offline. And I guess the other thing I would say is, while different pockets within luxury have shifted, so, for example, Americans now spend a lot more of their discretionary income on exciting experiences than they do on prestigious products. But keep in mind that even within America, a lot of the buyers of luxury goods are not American. They may be tourists coming from China or from other parts of the world. And in many of those cases, the idea of buying a luxury good is still very positive. So I would say that the shifts in that industry are not nearly as dramatic as what I've seen in many others. Now, that being said, how products are being sold, and even in some cases how products are being marketed and made, has shifted. Consumers at every level, at every buying level, are expecting more transparency. I think they're a lot savvier than they were just 10 years ago. They do a lot more research before they come into the store. And their expectations, whether they're going to spend $1,000 or $10,000 or $100,000, their expectation for a level of service and for a level of craftsmanship is still quite high. And so what that means is for the luxury players, I said there's an increasing risk between the long-term minded and ones that really are approaching their marketplace with quality and with excellence versus the scores of players that have positioned themselves as luxury but haven't really put the right investments or don't have the real heritage or, for that matter, the real manufacturing excellence to back it up. And understanding that luxury brands are still very much tied to an in-person shopping experience largely, I wonder if you're seeing a shift in terms of the type of talent that they are trying to attract. So case in point, I recently read a New Yorker profile of Virgil Abloh, a longtime collaborator with Kanye West and with a background in streetwear design. And he was tapped by Louis Vuitton last year to lead its menswear collection. Is this type of appointment a sign that large luxury brands are making a concerted effort to adapt to new trends? Or is there still a tension between the more traditional approach and one that's designed to appeal to the Instagram generation? So there is a big difference within luxury between the fashion side of the business and the the more traditional. So, for example, in the watchmaking sphere, I don't see them making the kind of strides that you just described with Virgil Abloh. The fashion piece is all about staying ahead of the trend. Mm-hmm. And it's about understanding not where the, the population of buyers are today, but where they're going. And to be successful in fashion, you have to really have a vision that extends well beyond what's selling and moving in the store here and now. And part of that is because most of the products are being designed and, and geared up for a launch that might be 18 months ahead. So if you were just responding to what's happening now, by the time your product is in the market, it really will feel very dated. In the case of, of virtual, or I could also say, uh, as an analogy, uh, Gucci's uh, partnership with Dapper Dan, who was a Harlem-based uh, tailor who was 
historically taking uh, luxury goods and repurposing them and selling to the entertainment community and, and sports, but mostly African Americans. I mean, he was vilified that 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 character back in the eighties and nineties as sort of copying and as um, retrofitting product that you know the many of these French luxury houses and Italian luxury houses took very seriously. And all of a sudden, come you know two thousand ten, two thousand fifteen, they saw what he was doing was actually quite magical because he was giving it a new purpose and bringing new life and reaching an audience. By the way, um, that was an urban audience that many of these. Um, uh, fashion houses had kind of ignored. And um, so to answer your question, I do think the more exciting uh, fashion houses and the more progressive ones have been moving very uh, aggressively and boldly into some of these new directions. You know, I think there's still some pockets within luxury or within fashion that um, the market has not kept up with. So, for example, when you see what's happening with more size inclusiveness, and it's happening quite a bit, and it's it's taken a long time to get there, but now I'm seeing more and more of the uh, moderate and, and value-based brands creating much better offerings, or there's for plus-size women. So uh, I think when it comes to um, multicultural and, and, and embracing more sort of ethnic uh, beauty and ethnic diversity, I would give them high marks when it comes to other forms of diversity inclusion. I'd say the industry has a long way to go. And in addition to operational expertise, you have an impressive track record as an investor and as an acquirer, including as managing director at the Carlyle Group and at Estee Lauder. Given the immense change that the industry has undergone, how would you say investment considerations today are different than they would have been even a decade ago? Yeah, uh, well, very much so. For one, um, there's so much more competition when it comes to um, uh, buying quality brands. There's a lot of brands on the market, and there's a lot of businesses that are for sale. But there's a real scarcity of uh, quality, sustainable, um, strong, healthy, viable, uh, and, and, and either scaled or, or potentially scaled uh, brands. And when those do come available... Uh, there are so many buyers, you know, because there's plenty of mo- money in the market, that's not the differentiator, that the valuations have skyrocketed. And, you know, I remember back in the day, I'm talking the late 90s, when I was first doing M&A for Estee Lauder, and we were we were essentially like a venture capitalist looking at beauty brands. And, you know, it, there weren't too many who were doing just that, because the other big companies like L'Oreal and Shiseido most of these indie brands that were small and and um, a little bit offbeat, that that it would be a waste of their efforts because they are these multi-billion-dollar companies. They have to worry about their quarterly performance. So Estee Lauder was really one of the first, from a corporate perspective, that was willing to buy next-generation concepts. But uh, the reason I bring that up is for the most exciting concepts that we saw on the market, whether it was Mac Cosmetics or Aveda. We would pay, typically back in the day, uh, and, and we thought this was top dollar, 3x sale. And, uh, and then by the time I left Estee Lauder, which was almost a decade later, uh, for even lesser brands, uh, you would see 5, 6x. And, um, and of course, when I went into private equity, we were looking at multiples, not in terms of the top line, but more in terms of EBITDA. When I first started at Carlisle, I want to say the um, typical... Consumer business, healthy consumer business, was a high single digit, so eight times, nine times EBITDA. 
uh, by the time I left, um, several years later, it was in the mid-teens. So there's been an enormous escalation of price. Um, there's, the, there's, um, there's a lot of money, um, and, and money in areas that historically were not as favorable in technology, in, um, you know, in, in, in medical devices, in industrial goods for a long time. This idea of investing in consumer brands and even more specifically in SASH brands, that's a fairly new phenomenon. And, um, and then the other thing that, that's an interesting shift I've seen over the last 20 years is the idea that strategic buyers might be competing in some cases with financial buyers. You know, that was never the case historically. Hmm. Um, and some of that has to do with, you know, with the, with the, with the borrowing rate that has given an advantage to leverage buyers. Some of that has to do with the fact that strategics have not moved as quickly um, in that direction as have the uh, private equity firms and venture capitalists. So they've had the advantage of speed. And now, that, you know, there are advantages on both sides of, or on each of the two sides. But the reality is it's very competitive to play. And I think the pressure is on as well to, um, to show a good return on these expensive deals. Mm-hmm. That was not the case. It was not that hard back in the day. I thought it was, but now that I look back, I think it was pretty easy. I think it's hard today. So I want to ask about your time with the Carlisle Group and your decision to leave. I heard you say in an interview while I was researching prior to our conversation today, I heard you say that it was, quote, by far the worst financial decision you could have made and by far the best personal decision you could have made. So I wondered if you could talk about what you meant by that and how you came to the decision to walk away. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in, in over the last 30 years, I've redefined what it means to, to be wealthy. Um, and for me, to be wealthy is not just being um, wealthy in terms of financial resources, but in terms of my, my time and my agency, uh, to be able to make the right choices uh, and to have a sense of balance in my life. And, you know, one of the reasons that Carlisle and its immediate competitors in, in the uh, corporate buyout arena are so successful is because they are so single-minded. Many of the partners there, you know, they love what they do, um, and this is all that they do and all they want to do. And for people who are, you know, meant to be doing this work and who are willing to sacrifice all else, it's, it's a great marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my case, I came into the private equity game later than many of my colleagues at Carlisle. Uh, I had been in a corporate world before and prior to that in strategic consulting. And so I didn't grow up with that as my only reference. And, uh, and my kids were young at the time. Now they're, you know, late teens, but at the time they were, uh, barely elementary school. And it's just uh, doing that kind of work with the single-minded approach that it took and the intense competition, even back then, which has only gotten worse. There was no room for me to have the kind of wealthy life that I enjoy today. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I, I, I did make a, a personal decision, uh, not a financial one, and, and one that has paid off other kinds of dividends. And switching gears a little bit, at Harvard, you teach a class called The Business of Aesthetics. Can you talk about what that mm-hmm. phrase means and why it's important in today's mm-hmm. environment? Yeah, well, so uh, here's the good news for anyone who's intrigued by the subject. Uh, I just finished a manuscript um, that is based on the course, 
uh, and it's a business book that will be coming out in November. Um, and the, the book is about a notion I call aesthetic intelligence, what it is, why it matters, and how to use it, how to boost it and use it for business advantage. The course came about because I, uh, when I left the business world, but I didn't want to completely leave the working world, I wanted to sort of have the space to think back about the, at that point, 25 years or so that I've been working in these different businesses and look at the way the world had changed around me, which is pretty considerable, and yet the language of business, the language of marketing, of brand building, and so forth, hadn't changed all that much in that same period. Hmm. And I never felt I had either the space or the freedom to really both critique what was and wasn't happening in the world of business, but also to, to sort of understand it and understand how we should start thinking about the marketplace in a much more uh, relevant way. And so when I first proposed the course, I was very clear in my head, I didn't want this to be a course about luxury management. I didn't want it to be a course about brand. I sort of wanted it to be a course that, about how all businesses should be thinking of, of creating value in a world where the human component of businesses is becoming ever diminished. And, you know, with the uh, increasing reliance on big data, on automation, on robotics, on AI. So the question I had is sort of in all of that, what, what is it that people are still responding to that a computer will never be able to really uh, satisfy? And, you know, when, when I sat back, I said, why do people, in the case of, for example, LVMH, which generates over $40 billion in revenues a, a year, and yet it makes not a single product that anyone essentially needs. Like, why are people willing to pay so much money and come back time again and feel good about it? Uh-huh. You know, they're not stupid. I, I have a lot of respect for the customers. And I realized that what LVMH was doing well and what Estee Lauder in this day did well and what many other companies in other industries, whether we're talking about a, a Tesla or a Dyson, you know, or Airbnb, but what they're all doing well relative to their competitors and relative maybe to the old way of thinking is they're tapping into this sense of delight, that they know how to take whatever tools they have and whatever businesses they are, and through a combination of artistry and through um, through cues, through inter- human interaction, um, through bringing, and, and what I describe, by the way, through bringing aesthetics, but aesthetics not in the traditional sense of just beauty, but more around sensorial delight, sensorial experience. The businesses that do that well are as as coveted and as uh, uh, well-positioned today as they've ever been. Uh, and the businesses that are treating their product or service like a commodity and doing it just like it's always been done, and frankly, not that distinct from their direct competitors, they're going to go away because it's, weird. It's, a, it's a race to the bottom. So this idea of the business of aesthetics is... Whatever business you're in, um, and I've given these talks to people in financial services, in hospitality, uh, and even in some cases in industrial areas, how can you how can you take that basic proposition and infuse all sorts of aesthetic value such that the buyer, who is a human on the other end, feels some connection to the product and to the brand and to the messaging, and 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 that in and of itself. And amidst the spirit and gives the company a set of value or, or a, a, a type of value that they otherwise will no longer have. 
Hmm. And based on what you've seen in the classroom and through teaching this course, do you think that, do you expect we'll see the next generation of business leaders approaching their companies differently with some of these ideas in mind? I very much hope so. Um, and, you know, by virtue of how popular the class was, which I was pleasantly surprised, and, you know, where we are as a society and what people are really looking for and needing versus, um, you know, what the most other industries and companies are still delivering, you know, I, I think it, 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 it solves or closes a big gap in, in the marketplace. And very few people, especially in a mature market like the U.S., buy anything because they essentially need it. You know, we, we, we need, we need food. We need obviously oil and gas, you know, to, to, to heat our homes or to get from A to B. But the vast majority of what we're spending on it, 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 it are things that, that give us a, a human experience, a life experience and not enough people in businesses are focusing on really what is that human experience that I either am providing or can provide. And I, I, I take it a step further and I say, in order for a business leader to to reinforce some aesthetic value or to use aesthetic value in the the business's products or services, that business leader has to start with their own aesthetic intelligence. They have to know the difference between what looks and feels great to them and what doesn't. And you know, if you take the the, the quintessential um, example of Steve Jobs, he wasn't a creative director. He didn't study art. People like to talk about his studying of fonts and, you know, certain other, um, you know, elements of design, but he wasn't a designer, Mm -hmm. but he had great taste. And he knew his taste, which may not have been my taste, but he was uncompromising with what everybody on his team, which consisted, by the way, of thousands of people, had to execute on in order to deliver on that taste threshold. Mm-hmm. And so I say, you know, why why are we always comfortable with a CEO who is financially very literate, knows understands the ins and outs of the operations of a business, and analytically focused, and yet that CEO, when it comes to any decision around the, the, the presentation and the experience of his or her product, is very comfortable relegating it entirely to the art department mm-hmm. or to the marketing folks. And I say this is an area where the CEO has to have as much ownership ownership as he or she would have in areas that historically were considered truly critical, because this is critical. And I've got one final question that I wanted to end on, which is if you were to go back in time and to speak with a young Pauline at the start of her career, and you could give her one piece of advice, what would it be? Well, yeah, I, I talked about this quite a bit in the book, because, you know, as we focus so much on how we think about things and all these frameworks and all these analytic tools, especially in the world of business, but even beyond business, I think we lose the sense of who we are as individuals, as tastemakers, what gives us, you know, a a sense of delight, of how to hire and enjoy the creation that others do. And, you know, we're a bit uh, divorced in terms of what's happening in our heads and what's happening in in our bodies and our senses. So I probably would have gone back and, you know, while it came to me over time because I was in industries that, you know, were sort of um, fueled by that kind of creative energy, I think had I gone right from my early days, Wharton, Bain, and then maybe into more of a traditional business than, you know, fashion and cosmetics, I may never have gotten permission to really start thinking more 
and appreciating the artistry of those companies. So I, 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 I'm glad the way it worked out ultimately, but I, I say to myself, you know, when I look at the students at Harvard that I've been teaching, uh, I want them to know today that not everything they're learning in traditional business classes is really going to come out of well for the kind of career and the kind of life they want to lead. And, uh, and I wish somebody had told me that to give me the confidence earlier on that I could meld those two spheres without having to sacrifice one in order to drive the other. Well, Pauline, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help listeners find out about us. After you've rated the podcast, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and middle market M&A.